Last month marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Two weeks after that, The Onion, the famed comedy newspaper, put out an issue with jokes about 9-11. How did they do that? Scott Dickers, the founder of The Onion, taught us how. His rule is that comedy is meant to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's why they put out that issue, to comfort the afflicted. The same principles that apply there can apply to us when we discuss things with our patient and try to use humor. Mr. Dickers teaches comedy writing and has turned that what seems unteachable into a science. He's described funny filters that all comedy fits into. He teaches which are the best filters for the exam room, how to recover from a failed joke, how to work humor into our office visits and lectures, and what jokes comedians can't use but we can. Scott Dickers founded the world's first humor website, theonion.com, in 1996, and a few years prior to that had helped found the original Onion newspaper. He served at the Onions as the Onion's owner and editor-in-chief on and off for much of the last quarter century. He led the Onion's rise from small, unknown college humor publication to internationally respected comedy brand. He's also a New York Times bestseller and Peabody Award winner. He documented his process for creating humor in his book, How to Write Funny, the follow-up in the series, How to Write Funnier, and, yes, shockingly, the final in the trilogy, How to Write Funniest, which are the basis for writing with the Onion program that he created and teaches at the Second City Training Center in Chicago. Mr. Dickers offers other courses and free resources for comedy writers on the How to Write Funny website. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. There are a lot of podcasts out there. Murder mysteries, breaking news. There's even a podcast about garden gnomes. Garden gnomes! But instead, you're here. Learning how to be the best physician you can be. Smart move. Do you know what else is a smart move? Working a locum tenens assignment with Comp Health. Now, I know what you're thinking. You already have a job. But that's the best part. You can work flexible locum assignments on the side for extra income. Or you can work locums full-time, too. And to top it all off, locums almost always pays more on average. Just head to financialresidency.com slash comphealth and see what locums can do for you financially. Scott Dickers, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It is my pleasure. Thanks, Bradley. So can you teach someone to be funny? For some of us physicians, we're really starting with very little experience in that area. So is it really possible to get from zero to, I don't know, 20 miles per hour in terms of funny? Yeah, it totally is. And it's so funny to me that myth that comedy is unteachable persists because the evidence is so overwhelming. They have uh, comedy training centers like the Second City and the Upright Citizens Brigade. And people go in there with nothing. They go in there like shy, accountants who never thought they were funny and they come out the other end getting jobs on Saturday Night Live. So 
it's, and I'm one of those people too. Like I grew up a totally unfunny person, a shy kid who was just really socially awkward. And when I tried to be funny, cause I discovered Mad Magazine and wanted to be funny, it was painfully terrible. Like I just was awful, but I loved doing it. I kept doing it. I practiced like with anything, practice, you get better. And pretty soon I'm a celebrated humor, whatever I am. So, okay. So now we're, a, for, for the doctors listening, they now know, even if they're not funny, they can learn to be, it just takes practice. I think there's, a, there's this author that, I, or actually she's a researcher that I often um, refer to on the show, Carol Dweck. And she wrote this book called Mindset, that if you have a growth mindset, you can actually improve in, in aspects that people think of as like being fixed in your personality. And I think funny is one of those things, right? Like you start off at three years old, you make some people laugh, you realize, hey, I can get a rise out of people. And then you kind of, as you're four, five, six, you kind of can figure out what makes people laugh and then what doesn't. So by the time you're 12 and in middle school, you're the funny one. And it seems like you were just always that way. Meanwhile, the rest of us probably started when we were a bit older and it, we're more apprehensive about taking those risks to figure out what's funny and what isn't. Yeah, you've got it exactly. It's you're putting in your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, oftentimes in childhood, because people tend to become funny as a response to whatever family dynamic they grow up in. Maybe they're the peacemaker in the family. Maybe they've learned that they get love if they're funny. And so they're practicing and they're doing it all the time. And then they do it at school. So by the time they're 15, 20, they're masters of humor. But not everybody does that. Some people, like I said, they're accountants and they never were funny. If they want to start putting in their 10,000 hours at age 40, why not? It doesn't make any difference. But yeah, I agree. It's, it is typically a young person's game, comedy, because people are more uninhibited when they're young and they'll say anything and they'll try anything and they don't care if it flops. And so we obviously grow up, we have that fear of not being accepted or being inappropriate or being dumb or goofy or childish or whatever. When you're a child, obviously you don't care. So when you go to a place like the Second City Training Center in Chicago, where I have the pleasure of teaching, they that's the first thing they do is they break down your inhibitions. So you start to act dumb and act goofy and act silly and you just loosen up and you just start acting like a, a three-year-old again. And it's very liberating because we still have those desires to be goofy and silly and say whatever we want, but we've just learned to suppress them. Doctors especially, they're very suppressed because they have to be so appropriate all the time. Right. So I don't know if we can really go back to being uninhibited when we're in the office with our patients because we're going to burn a lot of bridges and lose a lot of trust that way. So I think maybe we're going to have to keep that in mind in terms of, right, in terms of our, our recommendations. Yeah, you do that in a comedy class. You go overboard in a comedy class and you do wild gestures and you act like a goof. But what that does is it just like lets the steam out a little bit so that in your regular life, you can be like 2% more uninhibited in mixed company. Yeah. And actually on your podcast, I was listening to the episode with Chris Titus and he mentioned that he was in, I think it was an improv class or a stand-up class with someone or no, it was someone that was opening up for the comics and it was a physician and the physician was just trying to improve his chops for his profession. Absolutely. I mentor people on occasion and right now I'm mentoring it just so happens a doctor who wants to learn how to write comedy 
and he's learning really fast. He's going uh, gangbusters. He came at it with really uh, no background in comedy. Which is, I think, for the listeners out there, and from hearing my previous episodes, they know that's where most of us are starting from. So how do we even know if we're funny? Because I know plenty of us think that all of our patients love us, and then you go on Yelp and find out that's not the case. So I'm sure a lot of us think we're also funny. How do we know if we're funny? And then in the act, how do we know if we're being funny versus getting maybe some pity laughs and smiles from our patients? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's like anything. If you call yourself funny, if you're labeling and branding yourself as funny, you're going to have this expectation that everything you say and do is going to be hilarious. But if you allow yourself to praise effort and say, oh, that was a funny thing I said that one time. I have some promise. Maybe I should work on that. That's a much healthier way to, to begin. If you're going to brand yourself as unfunny, that's just as harmful because then you're not going to think anything you ever say is funny. Any, everybody's on the spectrum. Sometimes we're going to say stuff that's funny. Sometimes we're going to say stuff that's not funny. Being able to recognize it is pretty simple. It's just, do people laugh? Does it put people at ease? Does it make them like you? Great. If it doesn't, if it makes them feel awkward, if they squirm in their seat and get embarrassed, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know. So that's the main thing I would say is like, I wouldn't think of it in terms of, am I funny or am I not funny? I would think of it in terms of, have I done something funny? If so, maybe look at that. What did I do? Or did I do something that really wasn't funny? Look at that too. Okay, how would I do that differently? You know. So don't pigeonhole yourself. Recognize that it's something that you need to work on. Even if you are funny, you can always get funnier. But you're saying it's not hard to tell from the audience whether those are, are genuine, genuine laughs or not. It's the great, the best thing about comedy is that it's so clear when it's working because people are laughing. Yeah. So do you have any big pieces of advice? And I think we're going to focus most of this on the doctor-patient interaction, right, in the exam room. Although it would certainly be nice to get some pointers as well for if we're giving a lecture. But let's start with just the doctor-patient relationship. Any big pieces of advice, big picture, big rules? I've heard you talk on your show about not using cliches. I was thinking that actually might be a better idea for doctors to use if they're just kind of trying to dip their toes in the water of being funny and, and want to stay safe. Yeah, cliches are incredibly safe, and I don't like to use them in professional work, but I love to use them in interpersonal you know, conversation and stuff like that because they're great. Like I still call the internet the interwebs in personal in interpersonal conversations because I still think it's funny, even though it's a cliche that dates back almost 20 years at this point, 15, 20. And so, yeah, cliches are great. There are so many little phrases, jokes that people have already told. I actually have a list. <laughs> I, I, should, I should plug this. If you go to howtowritefunny.com, there's a, what is the link? I'm going to look that up. We'll include that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay, great. I, I won't look it up. But if you go to howtowritefunny.com slash list, I think it is, you get this list of cliches and there's literally like 150, 200 of them of just these little phrases, little jokes that are kind of guaranteed laugh getters. The reason I made the list was for professional comedians to not use them because if a professional uses them, it's kind of like cheating. But a doctor in an office, absolutely. Like go nuts with that list. Any other general rules that you think might help guide us and push us in the right direction? Yeah, so I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but so when I break down the craft of comedy and teach it to people, 
I tell them the first thing you have to have is subtext, which means you have to have something to say. You have to have something you're communicating. And then to make it funny, you just have to filter it through one of 11 different funny filters. And these are the only 11 things that are funny. One of them is irony. One of them is hyperbole. One of them is analogy. One of them is misplaced focus, character, parody. So they're all like literary devices. And there are a handful, like two or three of them, that are really safe and that you can use in a doctor-patient relationship where you're not going to offend anybody. One of them is shock, which I wouldn't use, like shock humor, anything having to do with sex or violence or drugs or death or whatever. That's going to be inappropriate in the wrong context. But there's another funny filter uh, reference, which is a really powerful form of humor where you simply find a reference that you share with the person that you're talking to. Jerry Seinfeld was a master of this. He would always point out these little things in the world that he's noticed that you never thought about, but as soon as he mentions it, you've, you're like, oh, I've noticed that, and you laugh. It's just this moment of recognition. Like, did you ever wonder how the, you always lose a sock in the washing machine? And just little things like that that he can spin into a bit. And if you're in a doctor-patient relationship, you have a lot of shared references and you can just, by bringing up those little things that you share, it lightens the moment, it bonds. Humor is very bonding. So I would say use reference humor. It's like observational humor. And then another one is character. So character humor is when you typically use a comedic character or an archetype that the audience kind of immediately understands because it's like a two-dimensional character. And characters recur constantly in comedy. There are characters like the bumbling authority, the man-child. Over and over, we see these characters. They come in slightly different shapes and sizes, so they always feel new. But usually when you say someone's funny, they have, they're like a character. So they have character traits. And a lot of funny authority figures like doctors or school principals usually assay certain character traits or they exaggerate certain character traits about themselves. And that can really work. And a really good trait to, to exaggerate in yourself is any, anything that's like ineffectual bumbling, like not like literally bumbling, but like, for example, being clumsy or being not, not knowing the, the right way to say something uh, to someone making fun of that and being self-depreciating. Like people always appreciate that. It's very disarming. That's just a, a handful of like little like tips or, or techniques that I think you, you can't go wrong, at least experimenting with. I think for physicians, it would probably be a better idea if you're like fumbling with the computer. You don't want to, so I'm going to be operating on you in a half an hour. And if you, you know, try to be uh, self-deprecating about your inability to have hand-eye coordination or something like that, probably not a good idea, but you know, poking fun at the fact that we have spent so much time behind a screen instead of making eye contact with the patient, which is something we all complain about and, and things like that, rather than something specific to the practice of medicine. Absolutely. It has to be about something ineffectual so that there's no, no real danger that you're going to be incompetent. But if you can show incompetence in some inoffensive or ineffectual way, that's really funny poking fun at your inability to run on time or doctor. Yeah, your inability to take your own advice and lose weight, your inability to uh, keep your hair, just anything. I use that one already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good.
Unfortunately. So are there any other, so you said shock was one to stay away from. Any others that, any other of the 11 funny filters that you think it wouldn't be a great idea for doctors to use? With their- Anti-humor is not one I would use. That's under the category of meta-humor. Meta-humor is wonderful. Like that's, if you like tell a bad joke and then you're able to laugh at the fact that you told a bad joke, that's really good. That's a great self-depreciating thing to do. But it's getting close to anti-humor, which can be a little esoteric and... I wouldn't necessarily go there. And I think irony is wonderful as long as you don't, as long as your subtext is harmless. Like I wouldn't do, I wouldn't use irony if your subtext is something serious. And with a doctor, I think you obviously intuited this, like anytime you're making jokes, you want to do it in the small talk portion of the meeting and for any harmless or ineffectual part of the meeting. But then once you're talking medical stuff, it's like you're down to business. and the, the humor is just like the parsley on the dish that, that kind of makes it pretty and makes everybody a little more comfortable, you know? So it's a way to, to help build rapport at the beginning of the visit, not at the end of the visit when you're, or I guess you could also splash it in a little bit at, at the end of the visit. Uh, yeah, bookend it. And, time for uh, reference. And, yeah. And, yeah. The, um, Would you have to wait a long time for me? It was great. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Like a stand-up comedian will almost always end their set with a callback joke, which is a form of reference because they told the joke once before in their uh, bit or in their their set, and then they do it again at the very end and the audience recognizes it, remembers it, and it's like a shared reference. Everybody loves it. So a doctor being able to like make a joke about being late at the beginning of the meeting and then calling back that joke at the end of the meeting is... Like, if you can pull that off, like, you seem like a competent, funny person. And one thing we should also talk about is the importance of confidence. Like, confidence is everything in humor. If you're not confident, you're not going to be funny. Like, even if you've got jokes that you've crafted, they're just not going to work. The same jokes crafted, like the same jokes told by someone with confidence, however, are going to work great. So... By the same token, if you've got bad jokes, those aren't going to work if, if you don't have confidence, but they actually will work if you're really confident. Like it, the quality of the humor is actually less important than how confident the performer is. The delivery. So you mentioned before using meta humor to recover from a bomb. And I think if we're confident in our ability to recover from a bad joke, it's going to help us just be more confident presenting with humor throughout the entire visit. So absolutely. So how so if we do tell a joke and it's met with crickets or maybe even disdain, how do we recover from that? How do we salvage that potentially damaged relationship? With confidence and with meta humor. So um, making a joke about how good thing I'm a doctor and not a comedian type of a line. It immediately puts everyone at ease and you can recover from just about any joke with that type of attitude. And again, if you're scared that you made a mistake and you're nervous, that's going to come off as very low confidence and it's not going to work. You're not really going to be able to recover. But if you can recover like Steve Martin, he does meta humor all the time. He's just like made of pure confidence and it always works he can go up on stage and just tell a really bad joke and pretend to be laughing at it himself, even though he knows it's terrible. <laughs> and the audience is loving it because he's enjoying himself so much. You know? It's infectious. Right. 
to use another doctor reference. I, that wasn't yes. even intentional. It's just pouring <laughs> out of me. Good. Uh, so do you think you can use the same thing if you crossed a line? Like, let's say you, you made a joke and it turns out not only didn't they think it was funny, they thought it was a bit inappropriate. Like sometimes I'll use profanity if my patient's like in their early 20s, right? And I can feel out the patient, at least I think I can, and figure out, especially if they're dropping F-bombs with me during the visit, I don't know why they get the impression that's okay, but they do, and then I run with it. So, but let's say I, I have that, but with like an octogenarian, and it slips out, and I've crossed the line, totally inappropriate. Do I just do the same thing? Or do you think there's something else that I need to do in order to be able to move on? Or same idea, just make a joke about the joke, keep going, push through, be confident. I think in general, the latter. I think you make a good point, like with the, the audience, because obviously you need to know your audience and you need to know what they would accept. And so if you've got like a, a conservative church going octogenarian, and you're dropping the C word and F-bombs in your appointment with that person, it's going to be really hard to recover from that. <laughs> uh, so just don't do it. Just don't do that. But, and swearing is just not the most shocking thing you can do. You can make jokes that really offend people or make them feel like they've been attacked. And it is really hard to recover from that. So for swearing, absolutely. I would make a joke about Oh, I, I thought I was going to get bleeped. Or if you sense that somebody isn't ready for swear words, there are jokes to be made. And I think in this day and age, swearing has become more acceptable because like all the presidential candidates are swearing now on TV. I don't know if you've noticed that. This is very new and it's just a thing. And also because we have the internet instead of TV and for everybody except the octogenarian, it's not as offensive. But let's say you told a joke that really crossed a line and was offensive. I think the best thing to do is prevention in that case, to use another medical analogy. I want to explain like what jokes do cross the line and just don't do those jokes. So the central mission of good humor should be to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So if you're punching down and you're making fun of someone with uh, a terminal illness or you're making fun of an oppressed group, that's gonna be perceived by most people as crossing a line and inappropriate and offensive, especially if they're in that group or affected by whatever you're minimizing. By the same token, if you punch up and you afflict the comfortable, almost everybody appreciates that. Everybody loves to see authorities brought down to size, institutions that are establishment institutions being mocked is always fun. And so, if, as long as you're doing that and not punching down, you could even suck up a little bit, especially to the octogenarian, like being pro-establishment is not going to hurt you, but don't ever punch down. Like no, even if somebody who, let's say they're a racist and they are just a cruel person, that's the only type of person you can get away with that, but that's a small minority of people. Most people, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, don't enjoy humor that kicks people while they're down. And as long as you can avoid that, I think you're not really going to do anything too offensive. The sort of superficially offensive stuff, swearing, sexual references, drug references, stuff like that, I think those can be easily recovered from with uh, a little bit of self-depreciating meta-humor. So that gets us to a little bit of a different question. It might actually be very similar. I crowdsourced some questions from the Twitter. 
And, and one of the questions that came up was very well phrased. How do we respect all without dampening joy, right? We want to set the tone in the workplace. A lot of times the physician is the, the leader. And like if I'm in the operating room, right, it's myself and the anesthesiologist. And then everyone else is helping us get the operation done. So we set the tone. So how do we set the tone in the workplace where there's varying degrees of what's funny and what's appropriate without disrespecting people, but still allowing them to enjoy it, especially since medical humor, there's a lot of gallows humor, so it can get pretty dark and pretty offensive. And you're talking about humor amongst the medical staff, not between staff and patients, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that really, I think it was from an attending who say was, would be going on rounds. So that's the attending, a couple of residents, a couple of medical students, and hopefully the nurses. And so this is frequently done in front of the patients. So still, you may, not, you may or may not be speaking directly to the patient. You may be speaking to the staff or to the other more junior doctors. Yeah, I think in a situation like that, like if there's if it's mixed company and you don't know everybody and it's maybe mixed audiences, mixed demographics, again, you can't go wrong with like reference humor because so many shared human experiences can be mentioned that uh, everybody can relate to. And if you say them confidently and with a smile, like if somebody's hurting and you can relate to that pain, or you can associate it with another pain that we've all experienced, like that's, that can be a light moment. If it's like gallows humor, I think everybody appreciates a little gallows humor as long as it's harmless, as long as it's sort of Adam's family caliber and not like Alfred Hitchcock caliber, you know what I mean? At least when I trained, which at this point was like, I mean, I finished my training eight years ago, but I started 15, 20 years ago, close to that, the landscape has changed a bit. So there was, at least then, a lot of pretty offensive stuff being, but I think nowadays we're getting better about that, what's appropriate and what's what's inappropriate. So it was definitely Alfred Hitchcock, and I'm sure a lot of that is still happening. And some of that's coping, right? You experience some pretty dark stuff in some of our specialties. So just helping push through it, that, that ends up happening. But you're right, you have to be cognizant of your company. Yeah, and there, there's obviously varying degrees, like one of the funny filters is hyperbole. And so a, a good doctor joke, just kind of a really generic joke, if a kid comes in and they hurt themselves, saying, pretending that they're, they're gonna die because of like a stubbed toe or whatever, like that's a little hyperbole, everybody's gonna laugh at that because we all know that they're not gonna die, they're just hurting. But it lightens the, the mood a little bit, maybe can get them laughing through the pain a little bit. Um, And again, if it has to be told with confidence or it's not going to work, but yeah, I think the gallows humor is something you have to assess your audience with. I'm an ear, nose and throat doctor and I do a lot of outpatient visits. Most of my time, I spend some time in the operating room, but I spend a lot of time in the office and we tend to see the same things over and over. And so I try to kind of have a shtick, right? Oh, sure. I think that's a good I, how many times can I remove earwax? And I tend to say the same things over and over. So I try to make it entertaining for the patient, which makes it more entertaining for me and more engaging. How do I, do you have any recommendations for kind of honing that shtick? Like, how do I improve upon it? I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. This, the things just kind of, some things end up being said organically. I find sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Do you have any recommendations for that? 
Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So you're basically a stand-up comic and you're testing material at open mic nights. And, but instead of having an audience in a comedy club, you have a patient that you're taking earwax out of. And yes, you're that's trying, exactly it. <laughs> you're, you're trying material. You have what's called your type five, like your routine that you know works, but you want to experiment, you want to expand it, you want to improve it. So what you do is you drop in something new, like in the middle, like use your safe material that works, but drop something new in the middle and just make a mental note. Did it work? Was it funny? And if it was, like, comedy is just a process of evolution. Like, you try something, and if the audience laughs with it, you keep it, and you then you riff on that, and you go more in that direction because they're laughing at that. And after a few performances, you've got a, a much improved set or whatever. So one other thing that comedians do, and I don't know how far you want to go with this, but I, I would do this. Before the patient comes in, just run the recorder on your phone so you can listen to yourself later to remember any jokes that you improvised during the, your little shtick that you want to make sure you remember. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that, I, I think that gets into some murky legal territory oh, yeah, in terms of recurring the uh, Patient Privacy Act. Didn't even think that. I'm not a I don't know that stuff. Yeah. No, but that's just in general. I think that's a good idea for doctors to do is to record their visits from time to time and even videotape them and, and look at them and see what you look like when you're interacting with your patient, not just for humor's sake, but just to recognize some of the potential flaws in your interaction. It's something that I keep meaning to do, but keep not actually wanting to do because I'm afraid of what I'm going to find. <laughs> yeah, it, it is scary to record. You learn a lot. Yeah, yeah. I just, <laughs> I, I've yet to have the chutzpah to pull the trigger on that. So, how do you deal with taboo subjects? So we got a little bit with reading your audience and, and what's safe and what isn't. But sometimes in medicine, there are some taboo subjects that we deal with. And like when you were at The Onion, right, you guys put out a 9-11 edition two weeks after it happened, which I think, speaking of chutzpah, and I mean, looking at it now, it's, I think it, it's fantastic. But how did you know when it was okay? And by extension, then, how do we know when it's okay? Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, so there's a formula for edgy humor. And in my opinion, no subject is taboo. Because as long as you're comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable, you can tell any joke about any subject at any time. And one thing you have to remember is that comedy is uh, a coping mechanism in times of tragedy. And sometimes in a tragedy, we sort of revert to our reptilian brain, our survival brain, and we're not in our higher brain function. We're not in the higher reasoning or that's where humor is. We're just not there. And so once we can laugh again, like it, it returns our humanity in a way. So it's a very cathartic and powerful sort of healing mechanism humor. And it's really important to remember that when dealing with taboo subjects. So yeah, my first response there is I don't believe there are any taboo subjects uh, as long as you're using the formula. So here's the formula for doing edgy humor. So if you can get perilously close to the wrong target, meaning perilously close to afflicting 
the afflicted or comforting the comfortable, uh, but not actually doing it, just like getting perilously close. And there's a, there's a fine art to that. But if you can do that a little bit, your humor is going to be perceived as edgy. Number two, there's a formula that all comedians know, comedy equals tragedy plus time. And one way to make your humor a little edgier is to reduce or eliminate entirely the time part of that equation. So experiment with how soon you can do something. And there's a great cliche that you can always use, the whole too soon, people are gonna laugh at that. It's a cliche that a professional wouldn't use at this point, but you know, a lay person could totally use that to do some self-depreciating meta humor after a joke bombs. And then the third way to make something edgy is to just insert a little bit of shock, throw in a little swear or make a reference to something shocking like sex or drugs or violence or something like that. Do any combination of those three things and your humor is going to be edgy. So you don't have to use a taboo subject to do edgy humor. You can do that humor about the most mundane thing in the world. You may come up with a joke about tacos and just run it through those three things and you might have yourself a really edgy joke. A taboo subject, as long as your heart is in the right place with your subtext, as long as you're saying the right thing, uh, nobody's going to find that offensive. Well, somebody might, but they'd be in the wrong <laughs> and I wouldn't worry about them. Because here's the other thing about humor is that if someone somewhere is not offended, you're probably not doing it right. Because somewhere there's always somebody who has no sense of humor. And at some point, them being offended becomes more their fault than yours. A couple of years ago, I had a string of Yelp reviews that were five-star Yelp reviews where they mentioned my humor, followed by a one-star Yelp review where they mentioned my humor. So, of course. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so you're saying that meant I was doing it right, not that I messed up with that one person. That person was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. But I, I think that's an incredible rule. Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's that rule. Whenever you're joking around with your patients, as long as you're following that, it's really hard to go wrong. It really is. Yeah. You can say just about anything. So I'm giving a talk in a month and a half on surgical options for sleep apnea. It's hilarious. A barn burner. Right. So what, what happens when we've got a really bland topic and we want to inject some humor, right? Like we just foresee everyone nodding off as we're just, as we're get, droning on and on about a pretty mundane topic. How do we inject humor into there? But it doesn't necessarily need to be edgy, just something. Something to light it up. I totally understand. I'm on the lecture circuit as well. I give talks. My whole talk is funny, so I don't have to worry about injecting humor in my talks. But I, yeah, I can imagine a talk on that subject you could really use a little um, humor injection. So there's a few things that I would do. First of all, count your blessings, because when your subject is really dry, the hard work is already done for you, because all comedy needs a straight man. And you've got the straight man. All comedy comes from contrast between the straight, the serious, and the boring, contrasted with the wacky, the silly, and the inappropriate. If you just have the wacky, silly, and inappropriate, that comes off as really kind of clownish and childish. 
And if you just have the, the boring and the straight, like obviously that just comes off as boring. So being able to play off of the two a little bit is really delightful to an audience. So with, when you're doing a humor lecture, like I do, like that's really hard. You're expected to go up there and just be funny or stand-up comedy. Everybody knows how hard stand-up comedy is. It's like one of the hardest things in the world to do because there's no straight man. Like you're just expected to go up there and be funny immediately. So count your blessings. Uh, a boring lecture about sleep apnea is the greatest gift that a comedy writer could possibly have. Because you can make jokes about snoring and about sleeping through your talk or the audience sleeping through your talk. Like there are so many jokes that you can use to play off of that straight subject. I'm envious of you. So really, uh, number, <laughs> yes. Num number two, so I wrote this book called How to Write Funny. So it's a long process that comedians and comedy writers learn to craft jokes and it's too much to get into just in this interview but broken down very simply you have your subtext which is the the thing that you're trying to communicate and then you filter that through one of these 11 funny filters and it comes out the other end as a joke and so you can just use and there's methods in the book for how to craft individual jokes and you can go through that and like brainstorm some jokes and try them out on some people in the office before you give your talk to see if, if they're going to be good icebreakers. And that would be a really good, fun experience, I would think, for somebody who's trying to get better at, at writing humor or get better at being failing that. So that's the do-it-yourself method. There are tons of people, tons of comedians who are at your service for writing a few jokes, like just Google comedy writer, and you'll find a thousand people with websites who write comedy articles and write freelance jokes for various publications or TV shows who would be more than happy at, uh, to write some icebreaking jokes for your speech. In fact, there's uh, an outfit that I, I was associated during its founding called Comedy Wire, where there's a whole team of comedians and you basically pay them, you give them a prompt and they come up with like dozens of jokes to suit your needs and you pick the best one. So there's a service for that. I don't know if that's what, what you were implying or what you wanted to get into, but it's, it's a thing that you can do. That is, I didn't realize that there was TaskRabbit for jokes that would Absolutely. have been useful for like a best man speech. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there yeah. that would reach out to something like that. Mm -hmm. oh, it's a great service. So is there any message that you'd want to give to your doctor? about maybe how he or she, let's say they, that individual happens to be listening and you wanted to give that person a pointer about how they could lighten up the visit a little bit and maybe joke around with you a little more, maybe before or after the prostate exam. That's always an easy yeah. one for humor. What, what well, message would you have? That's a good question. I want my doctor to laugh at my jokes. <laughs> that's what I, like, I don't want my doctor to be funny. I didn't go there for entertainment. I went there for medicine. So if I'm like trying to make light of something or getting embarrassed talking about like bodily functions or whatever, I want them to laugh along with me to, because that puts me at ease. If they're all totally serious and like giving me the stern look and nod while I'm trying to explain something in a humorous way, that makes me a little nervous, you know? It also, it also tells you that they're listening, right? If they're laughing at your jokes, then clearly they're listening. Yeah. And they might not be 
listening, they might not be attentive to what you're saying if they're not actually laughing at your jokes. Yeah, because if you feel like you're a doctor who's not funny or who doesn't have a good sense of humor and you feel like you're a lost cause and there's no way you're ever going to be perceived as funny, just laugh a lot at other people's humor. Like that's delightful. Everybody likes being around people who laugh. Oh yeah. One of my friends is like everybody's favorite person because <laughs> He's he laugh. just laughs at everybody. He thinks he makes you feel like you're the funniest person alive. Exactly. Jimmy Fallon is a laugher. Yes. He does yes. That. It's a great quality. So I wanted to thank you for a couple of reasons. One of which is as an ear, nose and throat doctor, we're not often thought of that much. Like if there's a list of which Game of Thrones character is most like your specialty? They'll talk about orthopedic surgeons and anesthesiologists. But there was an Onion article titled, You Get Into This Business for the Ear and the Nose, But the Throat Really Grows on You. So <laughs> I really appreciate the shout out to our little thought of specialty. You're welcome. That, uh, that, I'm glad you noticed that. So can you tell us a bit about your book, your books, but specifically how to write funny and how to write funnier and your podcasts for people interested that want to take a deeper dive into how to be funny? Yeah. So after spending a lifetime in the comedy business, I was a, a cartoonist. I had a comic strip for many years and then I got into The Onion. I was one of the founders and was on and off at The Onion for like 15, 20 years. And when I got out, I felt like I was really good at crafting jokes because I had done it so much that I decided I needed to put it down in a book that's a very simple how-to book called How to Write Funny that spells out the formula that professionals use to write comedy. And it's, uh, it's done pretty well. And that book focuses on jokes because I believe the first step to learning how to write comedy is you have to be able to craft a one-line joke. And the sequel, How to Write Funnier, is more about how do you expand that into a longer bit or a set or like a short comedy article or maybe a sketch, a comedy sketch. And there's a third book coming called How to Write Funniest, which is about how to use the power of a writing team to really elevate the quality of the humor by putting brains together. And then I, I recently wrote another book called Outrageous Marketing, the story of the onion and how to build a popular brand with no marketing budget, which was just kind of, there are so many wacky antics in the early days of The Onion, all the times we almost got sued and all the times we got in trouble. And it was really just a fun and crazy time. But there's also a lot of lessons to be learned about building a business because The Onion started with nothing and no investor. And now it's like a multi-million dollar worldwide brand. So I kind of mix those two, personal remembrance and like business book. I'm pretty happy with that book. And yeah, the podcast is, is called How to Write Funny. And I interview professional comedians, comedy writers, people in the comedy business about how they do what they do. And my website is howtowritefunny.com where I give people advice on how to write comedy professionally. Well, clearly <laughs> the prolific writing career the podcasts, the speaking, Second City, you're extremely busy. So I really appreciate all the time you've taken out to, to teach us how to connect a little better, how to use humor to connect a little better with our patients, because with that, we can have more impact. So I think you've helped a lot of patients get better through this podcast. So I appreciate that. Plus all the laughter that you've created. <laughs> I hope so. The best medicine. It was my pleasure, Brad. Thanks for having me. 
There are a lot of podcasts out there. Murder mysteries, breaking news. There's even a podcast about garden gnomes. But instead, you're here. Learning how to be the best physician you can be. Smart move. Do you know what else is a smart move? Working a locum tenens assignment with Comp Health. Now, I know what you're thinking. You already have a job. But that's the best part. You can work flexible locum assignments on the side for extra income. Or you can work locums full-time too. And to top it all off, locums almost always pays more on average. Just head to financialresidency.com slash comphealth and see what locums can do for you financially. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.